Hello and welcome to Plant Pals, my podcast where I talk to my pals about plants. I'm your host Mike, and my pal this week is Roger Pete, an artist out of Portland. You can find his stuff at JustSeeds.org. We talk a whole bunch about history on this one, not so much plants, so deal with that because I think it's cool as hell. Here we go. No, that was mean. I know you're going to dig it either way. It's a really cool story. Here we go. For real this time. Roger Peach. Uh, I am an artist and a printmaker, and I live in Portland, Oregon. And uh, I have recently returned from uh, three weeks in the DR Congo, uh, working on an art project about uh, the history of use of Congolese uranium in the Manhattan Project. So, I guess before we dive into your travels there, how did you find? How did you get interested in this project? Like, what kind of piqued your interests and led you to going to, you know, attempting to go to the site of where the uranium was extracted for that project? Um, I have a, a weird uh, family connection to the sort of history of the U.S. involvement in Congo that I uh, maybe won't go too into detail with because it kind of derails the, uh, derails the narrative. But I uh, have been... Um, just interested for a bunch of years now uh, in the the fact that that uh, it was like a single mine in Congo that made it that produced the uranium that made the Manhattan Project possible. And uh, um, uh, in doing uh, in researching the history of that mine, I, I realized a lot of that it had a lot of like historical resonance um, uh, that is sort of. Uh, explained uh, a lot of uh, explained and sort of illuminated a lot of aspects of history that I found really interesting and also that it was something that a lot of people in the United States didn't really know about at all yeah no I definitely didn't um, I just assumed it came from I know the Grand Canyon has some of it somewhere in that region and I'm just like you know it gets so yada 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 because of its you know the end result but you were saying like the town where the mine was ever, it was common knowledge. It's like in inverse Las Vegas where Las Vegas is all the imagery of the atomic testing. There's like, Oh yeah, no, we, that was us. We, we had to dig that out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like, you know, I live in Portland, so I'm about three hours from the Hanford reservation, which is the big area in the bend of the bend of the Columbia river where the Manhattan Project used this uranium from DR Congo to uh, manufacture plutonium. And it was the, the plutonium that was used in the first nuclear test of the Trinity site, and then also in the, uh, the Nagasaki bomb. Um, and so that, uh, you know, the, the, that site uh, was, you know, was constructed from like, just like sagebrush plain to, uh, brand new uh, like high production nuclear uh facility in three years and like all of the science that under underwrote exactly what it is that, what it was that they were doing there and how to build the infrastructure that they needed to do what they were trying to achieve that was all developed at the same time in that short three-year period 
And then all the people who did the work were imported from other locations and found basically like, you know, swelled the populations of these nearby towns. Like in like, a, I think it's uh, Richland, Washington. I, I'm probably getting that wrong. But anyway, one of, the, one of the towns nearby where a lot of the workers lived, their high school uh, like sports team mascot is still a, a, a like a mushroom cloud. They're like the, the Richland oh bombers God. or something. <laughs> Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, but that's the, but that is the thing is like, you know, talking about this history um with, you know, people who like I I did this presentation at this college in Eastern Washington last month uh about, you know, this uh the history of, you know, the use of Congolese uranium in the Manhattan project. And, you know, here's like people who are you know, live in this in this region that is very close to this massive you know, industrial like wasteland uh that is now uh, the most highly contaminated site in the entire western hemisphere apparently and really? you know and all of this contamination is directly as a result of the use of this uranium from the single mine in congo and you know the stuff that i was talking about with this project of history that i'm working on like nobody had ever heard a word of it you know nobody had ever heard the name they you know they they knew that uranium was used but they had no idea where it came from and like, like you say, like there's a, uh, a lot of people when they talk about the history of the Manhattan Project in the U.S., they talk about uranium that came from Canada and they talk about uranium that came from the desert southwest in like the Four Corners region. Um, and the reason that a lot of people that people don't really talk about the, this mine in, in Congo was because it was actively uh, kept secret during those early years of the Manhattan Project. Like the name of the mine was removed from maps popular reference to it was like strongly dis like discouraged and there was no like general acknowledgement that this is where the Manhattan Project was getting its uranium because the Manhattan Project itself huge hugely secret enterprise so it established this culture of secrecy that is still having this, a, a very profound effect on public consciousness in the present day uh, and what was the name of the town associated with the mine the mine itself is called Shinkolobwe, and it is uh, in the southeast of what is now the DR, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and the city where I just was is called Lubumbashi, and it's the second largest city in the country. And it is uh, a center of mining um, and mineral exploitation uh, of this huge belt of extremely... Uh, metal rich soils and outcroppings that extends from about 80 kilometers to 80 miles to the northeast of Lubumbashi to about a similar uh, distance in the to the southeast which is and that area is called the copper belt it's this uh it's just like this this uh large uh area of, of metal rich soils that produces uh some enormous percentage of the world's copper and cobalt and manganese and nickel and historically uranium. Wow. Yeah. Um, I just, from what I was reading up about it before we started, it seems like I was saying as well, it almost is kind of analogous in my small geology brain towards like serpentine, at least with in the West coast in the Western part of the, uh, U.S. There's a huge, you know, it seems kind of like there are these hot spots of endemism, and you always kind of hear about it in terms of like, oh, 
it's so the soil is so poisonous to plants they can't live here nothing can live here but you know there's these rich diverse ecosystems that happen on a soil that's supposed to be like so toxic nothing can look at it for too long even um so that's really cool to kind of imagine a similar uh analogous ecosystem in the heart of the jungles of africa no less like so you went over there you were there for three weeks you said I was there for three weeks. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's in this, this area, um, it's, there's, it's not, there's no rainforest. It's like South of the rainforest belt. So it's okay. a kind of woodland that is, uh, seasonally dry. It's got like a dry season and a wet season. And so, uh, it does like, it, it is like a, like it can be like a very dry environment. And while I was there it was the dry season and you really got the sense that it was like a very, like a, like a semi-arid experience for at least half half of the year and uh you know and it because it is you know it is these this like uh extremely weird soil uh soil chemistry you do like you get these sites of like hyper endemism all throughout the region and what that has uh and it's like there's because the copper and cobalt uh deposits occur occur in these hills I um, mean, I guess maybe that's because there's a sort of certain density of those rocks that the surrounding rock erodes more quickly. But any, but anyway, like the, the the mineral rich outcrops, like are these hills in the in a in a, a landscape that is mostly sort of undulating and flat, and because these hills end up being isolated from each other as a process, as a result of erosion, uh, and the concentration of the various metals there, uh, the plants that grow on these hills have uh, a. a Acquired this like super high degree of endemism and there's all these plants that are uh uh extremely hyper adapted to the presence of certain metals in the soils and, and some of them are some of them are like facultative metallophytes which you know means that they can resist the presence of metals in the soils and then some of them are obligate metallophytes which means that they require the presence of metals in the soil to you know to to live and, and they, you know they come from all 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 different families of plants and uh and i got to i got to meet some botanists at the university of lubumbashi who were working uh who were working on those plants and uh taught and and showed me some in an experimental garden and talked to me a bunch about uh how they work and what's going on with that it seems like maybe i'm mistaken but i thought i read that this is like pretty much the only place in the world where copper and cobalt are like the dominant soil derived like you know like like this they're so dominant in the landscape that this is one of the areas where you have uh what was the geez like uh uh cuprophilic god damn copper copper loving whatever that is in land yeah um it's just it's so crazy like i saw a, a figure that said like up to two percent of dry weight of certain plants could be just pure copper from them uptaking it yeah yeah it's insane like and and it just it's a very strange thing to sort of see uh you know in these experimental gardens that i visited um i, I like was sort of taken around this uh the in the department of agronomy at the university of Lubumbashi by professor edward Alunga and his grad student his uh, name was serge langunu and, uh, you know, they showed me these, this experimental garden with these rows of, uh, where they are growing some of these plants and, you know, and it was since the dry season, most of them are, um, you know, they're, 
they're not in flower or they're just like they, they've died back a lot but there was this one there was one that was called Haumannia strumcatingens which is one of the explicitly endemic to that to the Katanga region the Katanga is the name of that province um, that Lubumbashi's and, and the Shingalabwe mine is found in and it's this like it was like blooming like crazy and there was tons of it and it's this very strange looking to me at least it's a very strange looking mint like it's in the Lamiaceae family and uh and, and that plant in particular is one of the obligate metallophytes in that it requires uh, high concentrations of copper in the soil in order to thrive. Like, and apparently it, uh, you can grow it, you can, like, you can grow it in soil that doesn't have any copper in it, but it almost immediately gets attacked by a fungus and dies. And the thing really? that the copper is doing for it is that the copper is preventing it from being attacked by certain fungi. So if, it, so if it doesn't have that, it, the ability to uptake that copper, it gets killed by the fungi very quickly. Wow, that's crazy. I know that copper is like a supplement for if you have, you know, a wilt or uh, like damp off or maybe not damp off, but um, that's it's crazy to think that. I wonder if like in an abiotic environment, would that still be the case? Like if it just, the fungus wasn't present, would it do fine? And then, Going off what we were talking about before we recorded with like um, remediation efforts, you know, are these, do you hit a point eventually? Do you know they didn't mention anything about, you know, these copper loving plants that, you know, all of a sudden they've taken up so much of the copper from the soil that they kind of work themselves out of a job? Like, do you have to, is there like a cascading level of metals they have to kind of go after to remediate an area? You know, I don't know. I mean, you know, all these plants, they're growing, you know, they've sort of achieved their endemism by growing in these, like, zones of, like, extremely high concentrations of copper and cobalt, et cetera, et cetera. So presumably when they're growing in those areas, there's no, like, like ultimate degree of, like, you know, of, of they're, they're not diminishing the content of the, uh, the metal content of the soil by virtue of growing on it. But like you said, that there's, there's these... Uh, the people who run these, uh, the, this, the botany department at the university have these, uh, experimental, have an experimental plot that I visited. That's like at, uh, at the, in the park, like next to the parking lot of the hospital across the street from the massive, uh, factory that is basically was the foundation for the city that I, that I was visiting. And, you know, this, this that area of town, which is the northeast part of town, for eighty years of the operation of that factory, it's no longer operating in the same way it used to be. But there's a massive smokestack there that you know for about eighty years just sort of belched the the smoke from smelting, you know these like the these ores, so copper and cobalt, etc., across this neighborhood. And the prevailing wind just like pushed that smoke over this neighborhood for about eighty years. So all of the soil in this area is like extremely contaminated um with the products of of the from the products of the smelter and so this experimental plot uh they were growing some of these plants in a, a variety of different metallophytic uh, plants uh was as i understood it and i might have been getting this wrong uh the point was to uh, try to use these plants to extract the metals from the soil to the to a certain degree 
that would allow them to then plant other plants in that soil. So those plants could, could grow and thrive in a situation where if you just took those to a site that was contaminated and planted them, they wouldn't grow. So using the metallified plants to extract the, the surface contamination from these soils and then be able to bring in later perhaps, you know, you know, other plants that have like a, a use in a social context in a city, like shade plants, shade trees, fruit trees, and maybe people's uh, small uh, garden plots. Did you see if they had, were they starting to have much luck or these kind of newer trials? Yeah, at this at this site in the, in the hospital parking lot, they had, uh, it had been there for, it's been there for 10 years, I think. And, you know, there was a, there was a ground cover of a couple of different um, kinds of plants. I have the names written down here. I can't quite recall what they are. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll look it up while I talk. Um, but there was a, they had this, this ground cover of all these different plants, but they had, but they had managed to plant a bunch of, uh, a bunch of trees that were doing pretty well. So I think that, I think they, that their the project was advancing and giving them, I guess, the results that they were looking for. Um, because, you know, like, I think that, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the other areas around there, it was like pretty, you know, pretty blasted. And this zone, it had, uh, it had like a, a pretty extensive ground cover of these plants. And then also there was a, you know, there were these maybe 10 to 15 year old saplings, young, you know, young trees of a variety of, uh, of a variety of species um, that weren't necessarily economic species, but they were just like what the species that they had selected to test out in this particular plot. Super cool. God, that's just, it's so crazy to think that like how much of a Western bubble you can get sucked into. Like just the, that area alone, this huge region of endemism is at least something I had never heard of before we had connected, you know? Um, have you been, is this kind of the long, largest project of that kind you've kind of seen? Like, have you been other places for similar projects? Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've done, uh, I've, I've done other, like, you know, projects like this in other places. Like, I mean, the reason that I was in, uh, in Lubumbashi was that like, I made this uh, I made this map like I drew like I, I, I made this like like block print map that shows uh, the route of the uh, of the uranium from the single Congolese mine through the infrastructure of the Manhattan Project all the way through to the detonations over Japan and I did that uh, I produced this, like, you know, this object, which is like, you know, a product of like five years of research into history and then drawing it and then carving it and then printing it. Um, but, you know, and th the point of that was, was that I realized in, during the research process that you could tell every point in space and time where the, uh, where the uranium from this one mine in Congo went, because it was the reason that they were able to use it was because it was so incredibly concentrated and powerful, more way more so than any other side of uranium extraction in the in the world. And so, like I was, the point of this visit to Lubumbashi was to bring the block from this map with me and some prints that I had made from it, 
and try to share them with as many people as I could there. And I managed to like, I managed to share it with uh, the audience of these people at this art center that I was collaborating with. And then I uh, managed to make a connection with this uh, Jesuit social center and I made it, presented it there. And then that led into presenting it at the, in the history department of the university um, at Lubumbashi. And then the last uh, presentation I gave was at the, uh, the national, the office of the national atomic energy consortium, which was really fascinating. It was all very fascinating, but it was an interesting sort of like sequence of, of presentations ending with this national atomic energy entity. And then I also did a couple of workshops where I just got people to help me print it, which was really cool. And that's also something that is like part of the, an important part of the project is participatory printing of this, of this thing. Um, and, you know, and it's, you know, like in the, in, in this city, you know, one of the things that was most interesting is that everybody there knows the story that this mine was used by the Americans to build the bombs that basically made them the kings of the world, whereas people in the U.S. don't know that at all. Um, yeah. And, you know, and it's like this, projects like this trying to utilize these, you know, in, like imagery, like large, large form, large scale, large format block printed imagery that, t that tells a narrative about, uh, you know, political and environmental history. Uh, I've done, well, at least one other project like this, which involved uh, collaborating with a bunch of Indonesian printmakers about uh, pipeline, like natural gas exploitation and pipeline construction and what that looked like on both sides of the Pacific in Indonesia and in the Pacific Northwest. Um, when there was a lot of, uh, there was a, a lot of pipeline development being slated for um, this region um, it was near the forest near Portland. And a lot of the gas was supposed to be coming from oil from gas fields in Indonesia. And so that was like another like big block print, um, like public history and, and sort of like environmental, it's like environmental connection, like trying to trying to foster yeah. this like sort of shared, you know, history and connection between different regions of the world where, you know, it's like Americans, it's going to be hard to get Americans to pay attention to stuff that's happening outside of the borders of the, of the continent. So just, you know, just trying to see the extent to which it's possible to like bring those histories together and share it with people on both sides of these various oceans. Have you found people are receptive or kind of have a negative reaction, I guess, on the American side to learning the history of the mine and how the uranium was sourced and how it's kind of, you know, from this larger region that's been so heavily extracted, I'm sure with a healthy amount of funding from larger Western powers, you know, like the heavy metal gold rush is happening now because of kind of the green energy revolution, quote unquote. Um, so yeah, are you getting, or do you find people are just kind of shocked to find out about this almost secret history in Western culture? You know, like I, I gotta say that like, you know, there can be a lot of confirmation bias in the, in the pursuit of audiences for things like this. And so I don't think I've really had the opportunity to talk about this to an audience of people who might, be uh like sort of disgruntled by my interpretation of, the, of events right. uh, but at the at the the presentation that i did at this university in eastern washington there were a couple of 
people who attended the talk who were like old timers from um from like the cities near Hanford and uh and one of the, one of them got up and walked out because he I, I didn't get a chance to ask him you know why why he why he didn't like what I was saying but um but yeah but it, but definitely like there was at least one like sort of disgruntled uh, walk away after sort of hearing the presentation of um of this history you know and it's it's uh I would. I hope to have the opportunity to present this in, you know, like in a context where I think people would be a little bit less, like, sympathetic to, uh, you know, to the way that I interpret it. Because you know, the way I see it is that this, the history of this mine is the history of, you know, massive systems of power and money utilizing the raw materials found in certain parts of the world to achieve like these globe straddling uh, achievements of power and control and he and hegemony essentially you know like basically the US was able to use the, ma the material from this single fucking mine to become the global hegemon that it is today you know to you know to to construct these these weapons that enabled it to defeat its enemy in Japan at the end of the Second World War, and then to basically create the system of like you know the denial of any po of any other possible future to a lot of the rest of the world, you know it's like if it just and you know and then of course the you know the the following like forty or fifty years of Cold War conflict between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, where in the U.S the mine was used to create ever more and more elaborate bombs that were like larger and more destructive and tested in even more remote locations uh, and produced, you know, much larger zones of like irradiation and, and uh, environmental degradation and destruction. Um, and, you know, uh, like this, this mine was the source of, the majority of the uranium used in the, in the American project of nuclear weapons development up until like the mid fifties. So, it's, you know, wow. like at least 12 years, it was like always above 50% and nearly 60% of every bit of all the uranium the U S was using. And then, you know, they developed other techniques of, of like refining uranium that made it easier to get enough to do what needed to be done out of less powerful ores. So, it moved on to uh, to other sources, but the uh, the I think that it is you know like there 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 is a, a there's a lot to talk about with this story um, to people who have historical connections to like you know doing the work in these mines in these industrial facilities that you know that enabled the Manhattan Project to produce these bombs, to produce all this plutonium and uranium, et cetera, to do this, like, project of, of, of war-making. Like, and a lot of those people had suffered the same kinds of, like, uh, ill effects from exposure to high-level radiation as, presumably, the people who worked in the mine. But the difference yeah. is that the people in the U.S. who were exposed to those kinds of radiation had a lot of research done on them, which produced a lot of information about how to deal with those kinds of public health consequences. The people in Congo who dug the shit out of the ground with their hands and picks 
I have not had any kind of like remediation or any kind of public attention in the public health context or otherwise uh, at any point in history. And that was another part of like what I was trying to do in Congo is connect to these people who are doing on the ground research into the legacy of these public health uh, like consequences of working in these mines because it's uh it's just something that like you know it's it's just it's this, this like continued like these zones of ignorance in the u.s where it's like like where we've become aware of these consequences and we've tried to some degree to you know to treat them like like in the in this desert southwest where there were a lot of people who were doing the mining or people from the Diné tribe and mining uranium in the southwest in Arizona and Utah. And uh, people had a lot of like, there were like a lot of, a lot of obscure, you know, cancers and a lot of like other like really un unpleasant like health consequences to the work that they did. And uh, there had there there were campaigns and lawsuits that resulted in certain degrees of compensation. You know, maybe it's not necessarily direct cash payments, but it's certain degrees of compensation: new home construction, water projects, stuff like that. You know that, and that was possible because people were agitating from it for it within the U.S. People within the Congo have had have never had an opportunity to have an audience that was like you know, receptive to the things that they went through in order to do this work that has given the U.S. this massive world bestriding power. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost ironic that, you know, in terms of just kind of general knowledge, there's such a higher level of awareness about it, but so much, I mean, obviously very different histories since the uranium was taken out of the mine between the two countries. But um, yeah, it's just there's it's just you know kind of a classic case of you know obviously like small communities that are steamrolled by these massive corporations that are just getting dumped all these pollutants onto them. There are like you said, there are these opportunities for compensation. You know how much there's never enough compensation when your entire community's been poisoned by a smokestack for eighty years. But just the idea that like not you know regionally even it's just kind of like yep well they got sick but you know they gave them new pipes or moved them out and whereas you know in dr congo it's just like yeah no we the mine's down the street like it's this everything you see is related to that in some degree but we just you know it's a completely different level of um culpability almost and it's you know how much culpability like should it should whatever you know was it an american company was it Still a colony of, was it Belgium back then? I mean, that mine, Shinkaloboy, was opened in 1920 by, uh, by the, what at that time was the state mining entity of the Belgian Congo. And it was called, it was this, this entity called Union Miniere. And so they operated it for 20 years for radium because there was no commercial use for uranium until mm -hmm. around the Second World War. Um, and when the second world war came around, you know, like, you know, prior to that, like that was also the time when people were starting to do a lot of research into the uranium, into like the possibilities of fission into uranium atoms, like, like how, like there's, there's power in here. How do we get it out? Uh, and so a lot of the experiments that were being done were being done with Congolese uranium supplied by Union Miniere. And then once they figured out that they could probably make a bomb out of it, um, then that was, you know, that triggered 
in the U.S., the development of this project, the establishment of this project to try to develop atomic weapons, the Manhattan Project. And one of the first things they did was they went to the New York offices of Union Minier and say, hey, uh, you got any more of this uranium stuff? And the director of Union Minier was this man named Edgar Sengier, who uh, uh, operated, um, basically, who, like, you know, who directed the, this, this, the operations of this Belgian state mining enterprise, but who had left Lubumbashi to, for New York because of the, uh, uh, the, the Axis capture of Belgium at the beginning of the war. He, uh, he said uh, you know, to them, yes, I've actually already had 1,200 tons of Shinkalobwe uranium ore shipped here already on the off chance that you were going to ask me that question. Wow. So it was already sitting in this warehouse in Staten Island, New York. And the Manhattan Project, you know, uh, Leslie Groves, who was the American director of the Manhattan Project, he was like, like, I'll take that, open that mine up again. I want everything you've got. So that's when they sort of, that's when they started. Prior to that, like all of the stuff that was in New York was just the tailings that had been sitting next to the mine. Wow. It was just like, because they hadn't been mining for uranium and all the uranium, they'd be like, well, this is useless. Just put it over there. <laughs> um, and then, you know, once it, once it became clear that uranium was actually where the real, you know, where the real story was, Senge had this, had all the tailings he could manage packaged up and sent to New York. And then, you know, the U S got involved and basically said, okay, well, we're taking charge of this operation. Now we want you to open the mine up again and start, you know, getting as much of this stuff out. We will buy everything you can get out. And we will also send, and the U.S. also sent to Congo during that period uh, officers of its sort of nascent intelligence service, in this, which was uh, called the OSS at that point before it was uh, uh, renamed the CIA. Uh, they were, there was like a whole uh, suite of uh, various agents, um, the most famous of which being this guy Wilbur Doc Hogue who uh, went to Congo um, with the purpose of uh, denying access to that uranium to uh, any of the uh, erstwhile enemies of the United States. So, like, they were, they, were, they were engaged in this system of, like, industrial cloak and dagger, trying to make sure that the Nazis couldn't use the basically, like, criminal Belgian business enterprises to sneak uranium out of Congo and... Uh, for the purposes of, uh, you know, expanding the, the Nazi program to a, develop an atomic weapon, which, interestingly enough, had begun in the early stages of the war after the Al Axis powers took Belgium. They found on the docks in Antwerp about a thousand tons of ore from the Schenkelobwe mine, which they used wow. to develop, to, to like kickstart their own uh, nuclear weapons program, which didn't get off the ground. Really. Yeah, I mean, I might be misremembering, but didn't they kind of move away from the idea of fission being the method? Like, there's just they hit a wall early, from what I remember reading about, where you know, it where America and Western powers kind of kept pushing this one angle. They said, "Ah, eh, that's not gonna go anywhere. Like, we're gonna have to find an alternative to creating this super weapon." I forget exactly what. Um what they were uh what their tactic was but i remember that like when the u when the u.s basically like captured the facility where uh 
Heisenberg, 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 right? Yeah, Rainer Heisenberg was working on the Nazi bomb. Like they, they realized that they had hardly made any progress at all. And most of what they had managed to achieve was they were, uh, they were trying to approach the enrichment of uranium through, uh, uh, heavy water reactors. So they're like, instead of like enriching uranium metal, they were somehow trying to use, is it deuterium to, uh, to like, uh, to like advance their research into bomb making. I don't understand exactly how that was supposed to work, but basically when the, when the U S found the Nazi, uh, facility, it was a, it was a heavy water reactor and they had made no, uh, they had produced nothing that was going to remotely be fissionable. They had the rockets, just not the bombs. Yeah, it was just they. They uh, uh, yeah, they had like they had all these like I don't know, just weird things that looked basically like magic spells and like ritual devices that, um, that are really interesting like historical artifacts. Um, oh, I could go on a whole another hour tangent about the occultism in the Nazi Party and how they're trying to, like, they're basically like a couple sentences removed from like Vril Energy and uh Madame Blavatsky and like all that crazy early eighteen hundreds Bohemian like we're like the sixth the Aryans were the next race and we're the fifth and before that we were jelly people that divided instead of had sex. Like it gets fucking bananas so quick. And they were so like that was like they were just kinda got rid of some of the like nouns in that and then turned into the Nazi party. Like it's it's just it's so it's so fucking that's weird shit. Yes. Um, but so you also deal a lot in like biodiversity and conservation as subject matters, right? Yeah, most of the, like the art that I make is related somehow to to biodiversity, to our relationship as a society, or like you know as a species to biodiversity and like the good and bad aspects of that, and like um, the political aspects of that. How did you first, sorry, I just cut you off. I was going to say, I was going to ask, how did you, like, in the very beginning, how did that kind of, how were you, how was your interest peaked into that, this side of things? Um, you know, that's hard to, that's hard to pick out. Like, uh, you know, my sort of specific interest in, in like you know the phenomenon of biodiversity i think happened after like i i you know i moved in 2003 uh from minneapolis to a sort of punk rock commune in southern oregon and it was a real it was a very uh dramatic transition from like living in a shitty midwestern city to living in this like like uh, extremely vibrant even though it was like basically a woodlot it was still like you know like like a, you know a, a forested parcel in the in the central Oregon mountains central Oregon not, like, not the coast range but whatever that is the Cascades and uh, and just uh, you know building a house out of trees and just coming to appreciate the seasons and all the things that would appear and disappear at different times of the year and acquiring this sort of awareness of, uh, the, 
density and complexity of things that were around and their various interactions with each other and their interactions with me. Uh, their sort of assumptions of territory, their priorities, their uses of space, and the way their uses of space and uh, and appropriations of like their means of existence interacted with and bumped up against mine. And then, you know, from that sort of, uh, you know, uh, awakening, I guess, you know, like that, that sort of awareness extends out, you know, to basically to encompass the rest of the world and to inform a study of history and a relationship to politics. Um, that's, and that's, you know, sort of an ongoing process of trying to, trying to figure that out. Yeah, no, I don't know if there's ever an end goal in mind for me, at least with that, you know? Um, that's really cool. So, um, it was almost an unconscious thing, you know, like I'm the same way where it was like, I didn't really think there was people that didn't look at it that way. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, of course I'm, I want to know how the trees relate to the birds, relate to the water, relate to the fact that we haven't cut down these trees and all these things still can exist. Um, so yeah, I definitely, I can, I can appreciate that angle of like just being slapped in the face with it almost like oh yeah no this is this is incredible yeah and i'm uh, just and being feeling like a feeling like you're a, you're a part of it is yes. you know was it was it was a crucial realization to realize it to you know just to feeling like that it's that it's it surrounds you and it creates this whole that is larger than you which you are a part but which is in and of itself something that you you know that you are like just a little bit of and that you like your actions you know churn like to contribute to the to the, to the churning of the entire mass and so like when you like when you try to figure out how you relate to it you relate to it as something that is much larger than yourself as opposed to something that is a series of things that are smaller than you that you are trying to administer and control for the purposes of like your personal benefit your economic benefit your social benefit whatever it's that that inversion of the perspective of like the world is just something you have to sort of sweep off your porch to it being something that like where like like you are just you know that you are bound up in this massive like swarm of things all moving under their own power towards their own goals and that your goals form a small part of that that sum total of interaction. And that was the difference between like living in a you know living in the living in the city and then moving to the forest was that that was the experience of inversion that I had. I know it's it's almost terrifying if it wasn't so exciting at the same time to kind of realize that you know like oh I you know especially like you know having grown up in the suburbs there's kind of uh, you know the woods is over there and then your yard's here and then you know like you gotta mow it once a week make sure no weeds come in like just this endless fight against it when you can realize you can just join in and like you know a little tweak here and there and everyone's getting along great yeah i mean it's it's something that like i find really interesting is that the you know one of the things that i you know, the, over the course of the last 15 years, like I, I you know, I, I'm in, I'm not enormously knowledgeable about anything, but I am a great enthusiast of, of a bunch of things. Like I really, you know, just like just getting to, to be oh, familiar with, with the insect world, 
spiders, other arthropods, and then plants, um, you know, and fungi, and, and, and just all, this, all these sort of things. And, you know, thinking about, like, well, why is it that, you know, uh, and also, you know, birds, whatever, but like, thinking about, like, why is it that you get invested in this stuff? And because, like, it's because it's, it's the stuff that you can experience, you know, like, the, mm-hmm. it's, it's like, it's near to hand. You can go outside, and if you want to experience the endless, like variety of of, and be curious about the endless sort of variety of forms of life, like it's right there in front of you. If you're interested in plants, if you're only interested in things like mammals, and you know, it's like you're you're gonna have a hot in a lot of places. You're gonna have a hard time relating to the natural world. That's the only kind of like things you value is things that you know are sort of larger and hairier, but you know, in in these sort of impoverished environments that we inhabit, a lot of times the only things that it's really possible to like acquire that kind of a depth of like connection and investment to is the smaller stuff like insects, fungus, uh, and plants, because you know these are the things that we are sort of like that we are not not necessarily just that we are left with, but that we are able to access in a lot of like modern life. Like that's what we can get to in order to achieve that sort of sense of connection and wonder. Absolutely. And there's such a simple joy in it too. Like every time I learn a new species, I, I, I hate to have like the collector mindset where it's just like, oh, all right, I saw that plant, put it in the archives onto the next one. But it's just, you know, like every thing you see has a history, you know, like I can, I can kind of see the parallels with the story of the uranium, you know, like this, you could, so there's a physical radioactive, uh, footprint where the, where the uranium was stored. Is that what you're saying? You could trace it physically. Yeah. They call it K65 residues and 65, K65, because the uranium that came out of this mine was, uh, a lot of it was at 65% concentration and a lot of other uranium mines struggle, you know, the majority of them struggle to produce like 1%, you know, most of them are like 0.3%, the ore, yeah, you know, I think there'll be like zones of like higher concentration, but in general, the ore bodies are like much, much like weaker in terms of their concentration. But this, this ore body in the Shinkolobwe mine was 65% and some parts of it were up to 75%. And because it, it was, you know, this is the reason why it was, why it made so much of the, the research of the Manhattan Project possible, but was because they didn't have to do a lot of initial concentration to get it to a point that they could use it. Either for, you know, the, their initial research in like the, the various of the first reactors that like Fermi built in Chicago, um, the you know they were using this uranium because it was and it was like it made it possible for them to do all this research because it was so concentrated and they were able to do to put it through all of these various industrial processes to generate the different kinds of uranium oxides and uh tetrafluorides and hexafluorides uh you know that they need that they used for the various stages in the process but at each of these sites like like the you know, after it left this warehouse in, in in Staten Island, the first place that this the you know the ore the ore went was to this uh, uh, facility in uh, this plant in a town called Middlesex in New Jersey, where it was crushed, basically just like run through an ore crusher to pulverize it. 
And that site, uh, you know, if you is like uh, there, it's still producing these sites of like localized contamination in like schools where, where like they're like realizing that there are these like areas of high radi radioactivity as a result of just the improper disposal of waste from this facility. You know, and there's like every year there's like some other story of like some, you know, oh, oh shit, this high school is contaminated with this waste. And then wow. from there it went to like upstate New York where it was uh, uh, refined further uh, at this uh, glass factory outside of Buffalo. And up until the, uh, this point, the only use for uranium was uh, to like make glass this weird yellow color. That was the only industrial use for it. And so they were like, okay, well, we're going to take this factory from you and we're going to use it. We're going to use your, you know, the things you've been already, you know, that you've already been processing uranium. We're going to, we're going to ramp that up. And, uh, during that acceleration of that process of converting this uranium ore powder to like various, like ura black uranium oxides and these sort of like weird yellow green uranium hexafluoride, um, powders, I think that, that is the correct word for it. Um, they were just like, like the 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 like waste products were just being dumped, you know, on the ground. They were just being like shoveled out the back door of the factory. Who cares? Get it out of here. We're building a bomb. And Classic. and then and there's, you know, after the after the after the war, after like all this industrial you know infrastructure sort of was like thrown away in the great American sort of deindustrialization process of the of the 60s and 70s and 80s, you know, then these, then it's like, okay, well, these zones are, you know, have just been like, like hyper contaminated and then just like left to drift in the wind by, you know, by the fact that the government has moved on elsewhere and like, and like they're no longer interested in, in what's going on in these places. And, you know, there were, there's like these amazing, awful news reports of people's investigations into the legacy of contamination in this site in upstate New York where they're like, yeah, it looks like uh, they they built these these like, you know, big concrete coffins to put the drums full of high-level radioactive waste from this, like, from this uranium from Congo inside, but they got too hot inside, so they just started leaving the doors open. And then there's another, there's another story where there's like, they're just talking about like, yeah, there was this one road like oh, like next to the plant that where they had just taken all the drums out of the plant and just lined them up along the side of the road for like half a mile. And it was just all these like ancient rusting drums full of high level radioactive waste. They're just sitting there for like a decade rusting in the rain. Wow. You know, and then from there, you continue on in this in this cycle of horror to the. The, the, this factory in St. Louis called Malincrot, uh, which is a Malincrot Chemical Works, which is where they took the products of the Linde Air Factory, which is the place in upstate New York, and they uh, they put it they they packed these products into these cylinders that they call bombs, and they put them in these furnaces uh, at extremely high temperatures. The result of which was that the the these uranium oxides would undergo this form of chemical transmutation and result in the production of pure uranium metal um, and which was then trans shipped off for enrichment at a couple of different sites but you know the Malincrot facility produced this this uranium pure uranium metal for 
15 years for the Manhattan Project, for the federal government. And then, you know, when that, when the levels of production, you know, that, that, was, that, were, that were needed, uh, like tapered off, uh, the factory was shut down by the government and sold to a private operator. The private operator uh, realized a little bit too late what they had on hand, which was thousands of barrels of high-level radioactive waste, you know, which produced because of the, this fucking ore from this mine in Congo. Some of the barrels at this point are still the same barrels that the ore came over from Congo in, and they say product of Belgian Congo on the side instead. At least, you know, like some of the, like some, some, this is some, like some of the waste, some of like all the oldest like canisters of waste from this, from this site that this person is like realizing that they have to deal with. And so what the, what this, the, this factory owner did was they loaded a lot of these, they loaded all the barrels that they could onto trucks in the middle of the night. And they took them to the municipal landfill in East St. Louis and unloaded them there. You know, and it's basically like, it's like this like shady, like mob connected yeah. operation, classic, like, you know, if you need something like industrially disposed of in America, you call organized crime and they do that work for you. And so that's, you know, what happened in St. Louis. And then, you know, the dump was like, it was like, you know, like buried it over with, uh, you know, with fill and with trash. And it, and it just sort of sat there for 50 years until the dump caught on fire. And then there was this massive underground trash fire burning through this enormous municipal dump for a long time. All these news stories about it. And then the federal government says, actually, it's uh, worse than you think because that fire is burning towards this illegally dumped massive stockpile of high-level radioactive waste that we know about. Yeah, I was going to say. They they were aware of it, but they said, "Hey, whatever, let sleeping dogs lie until it's yeah, caught on yeah. fire." Yeah, and they're just like, "What happened to the waste from that factory?" Oh, the guy put it in the municipal dump, huh? Okay, well, uh, we've got something something else to think about here. Russians, yeah. let's go. Let's talk about the Russians. Saved us some money, and so you know, they're like, "What's what's you know?" There's all these articles in the St. Louis Post Dispatch from that time that are about like like you know. Like dirty bomb question mark you know the, the because the idea was that this fire would eventually reach the rad waste in the dump and that it would you know basically like put a bunch of high le- a high level radioactive material into the air and the smoke bloom that was coming out of the burning dump like and, Centralia from hell yeah and there's you know and I've been in touch with this organization in St Louis uh, it's called just mom St. Louis. And it's this coalition of people from the neighborhoods that are around the, this dump that have for a long time been trying to, uh, get remediation of the contaminated site. And also some compensation for the people who were like lived in these neighborhoods and who built their built houses or moved into houses. They were constructed on, you know, on the verges of this, of, you know, of the dump. And, you know, and I've experienced high incidences of, uh, you know, throat cancers, blood cancers, all those sort of things you would expect living next to this kind of like high level radioactive waste. And then there's, and then, you know, you go on from there and there's Hanford, you know, which I was just talking about at the beginning of the conversation, the most highly contaminated site in the Western Hemisphere. And, you know, Hanford is the subject of a massive cleanup effort, a massive industrial process to try to extract from the ground the huge 
levels of uh, contaminated water and soil that are partially the result of the first you know, few years of the Manhattan Project where they were refining this plutonium and enriching this uranium and just hosing the wastewater out over the fucking sagebrush. And then they stopped doing that and started storing the wastewater and some of the other products in these like single-walled metal tanks that are in the ground. And all those tanks are cracked and leaking into the aquifer now. But there's this huge, you know, there's this huge process of trying to figure out how to remediate this like in, insanely contaminated environment that is currently underway. And you can visit Hanford. Uh, there's one of the reactors is like basically uh, it's been museumized and it's part of the, uh, uh, the there's a there's a Manhattan Project National Museum which consists of the B reactor at Hanford, the uh, the Oak Ridge nuclear uh, weapons materials refinement facility in outside of Knoxville, Tennessee, and the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. And, but like in, in Hanford, you can go and visit the B reactor and it is an amazing thing to see because it is like, it is just this stupendously huge, like handcrafted industrial object for the purpose of enriching uranium. And it is like just absolutely an amazing, insane uh, thing to, to look at. And just imagine the, the sort of craft that went into producing it because all it's like it made up of like 150,000 individual graphite blocks that were all carved by hand by craftspeople, wow. drilled with these precise holes so these various tubes could go through and the uranium slugs could go through the other directions. And then if, you, if you're standing outside the B reactor and looking out at the Hanford landscape, you see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven other reactors that were developed in the years after the Second World War for the purposes of producing even more plutonium and uranium and eventually domestic electricity. And not all of that is over and shut down and all those reactors are cocooned now. They call it the process of closing them off and entombing them in cement, cocooning. Um, but the one of the things that I just, you know, that I, that when I was in Congo that I was thinking about uh, and related, thinking about Hanford and the cleanup process there because it's this huge industrial effort involving all these complex like like techniques of bioremediation. One of the things they're doing there is that they're pumping a lot of the uh, contaminated water out of the aquifer into this building where they have these biodigesters full of a certain kind of bacteria that is somehow uh, digesting the radioactive uh and toxic liquids and rendering it safe for some other form of disposal and then pumping that back into the aquifer. Wow. Wow. Pumping it back in. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's these enormous plants uh, that are intended to take uh, the radioactive waste and uh, melt it with uh, glass and form these like melted, these like glass cylinders. Uh, that incorporate a lot of the radioactive material. So, and then so the, the idea is these things, which are still extremely radioactive, but they're just very stable, indestructible objects, and that they can eventually be put into the ultimate storage, permanent underground radioactive waste disposal unit, which doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It doesn't exist. And it probably uh, won't ever exist because nobody will ever permit it to be built. Um. It, you know, like the Hanford is like there's there's this one 
part of Hanford uh, where there's a pit that's full of the nuclear reactor cores from submarines. And you can see it on Google Maps. If you, go, if you look at Hanford on Google Maps, you can see this pit that is just like basically they just saw the center sections with the reactors out of these submarines, cap, cap the ends and put them on barges and barge it up to Hanford to like put in this pit. And that's like where nuclear submarine reactors go to die. And like while I was in Congo, I was thinking about this like massive industrial effort to remediate the consequences of all of this, this activity and this contamination. They're spending millions and millions of dollars on developing these new techniques and this is uh building these huge facilities all this infrastructure that serves all these things and just thinking about how this is an echo uh of the original manhattan project where the remediation of these contaminated areas in the in the west takes all of this work and money just like the development of the weapons took all of this work and money. And meanwhile, in the place that made it all possible, there is no work and no money. And nobody is spending millions yeah. of dollars to build hospitals, to, uh, you know, to treat, to even to study the effects of all of this radiation and the exploitation of it for this purpose has had on the people you know, who live there. And it's, it's like it is just like we're repeating history in that, you know, all the money and all the effort and care is being lavished on efforts within the United States and the people who did the work and who are still doing. Yeah. It, you know, they, they are they are not part of the narrative. They're not there. Nobody is asking the people who worked in these mines what they want and what they are, you know, how they feel about this history. So. This project that I'm working on is trying to imagine what starting a conversation about that would look like. Well, that's incredible, man. Seriously, that is that is. I had no idea about really any of this. Like that was. I just sat here. Like I was. I had a note. Sorry, I thought I was notes. No, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. And you're completely right. Like just you know, it, it, enough people get enough you know like you were saying like uh in this in the original cleanup processes in the u.s you know enough people in the southwest where these cancer alleys were starting and people were getting upset enough that you know jimmy carter finally developed super fun sites and there's some level of you know culpability um it's still scratching the surface but um no i think that's an incredible point that um that you know these communities that you know, if anything, like DR Congo is responsible for World War Two ending. Like we, we just you know committed the worst atrocity ever have happened in the history of humankind. You know, like they were just kind of the the first domino to be have forced to fall in that process. Like it really, I'm not blaming them at all. I'm saying that it's completely not their fault. But it's just like it's incredible to think that these people who are forgotten to western history are just so important in the current landscape of the entire planet you know but um i really can't thank you enough for coming on and talking about it that is i was incredible like to hell 
let's talk about the plants. I was like, I'm, I'm <laughs> staring down, you know, I'm 30 is coming soon and I can see the World War II history buff part portion. Of my <laughs> yeah, totally. That's totally what's happening to me. <laughs> yeah. But um, I really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure. It's been, it's been a real treat. Uh, do you have anything you want people to know about? Anything uh, no, uh, at this point, like, you know, what I'm trying to work on next is like, I'm hopefully going to take, uh, the block, you know, this, the big map thing to, uh, other places and do and share it with some of the communities in the States that have been affected by this history. And that's like, you know, that's my next, um, my next project. Plus I got to figure out, I got to write something about this experience that I just had because, uh, it was a. There's a lot. There's a lot to tell about it, but I didn't manage to insert into this pocket. Oh, looking forward to that. All right, man. Thank you. <laughs>